1: Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today. Um, Today, I'm speaking with Patrick Hekopian, who is a senior lecturer in history and American studies at Lancaster University. And today, we'll be talking about his new book from 2013 called American Immunity, War Crimes, and the Limits of International Law. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you for speaking with us.
0: Thank you, Christine. I'm glad to be here.
1: So just to get us started... Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: I am uh, British. I did my first degree in American Studies at uh, the University of Sussex in England, and then I went to do my postgraduate work, uh, or I was a grad student in uh, US Parliament in the United States. I went to Penn and did a master's degree in communications, and then I did my doctorate in history at Johns Hopkins University. And that's where this research project really started, because the dissertation topic that I pursued was on the commemoration of the Vietnam War in the United States. And uh, a lot of my uh, work on that topic was about memorials, not just the memorial in Washington, D.C., but other memorials around the country. And um, that led to an interest in the way that the United States has come to terms or attempted to come to terms with the memory and the legacy of the Vietnam War. And uh, this project on the legal arena really grew out of uh, that dissertation topic on uh, commemoration. And the connecting theme has to do with judgment, the way that uh, Americans have uh, made decisions about matters of judgment uh, related to the history and the legacy of the vietnam war um but obviously american immunity takes this into the distinct arena of legal matters and judicial matters
1: okay and so this is your second book however right did you have yes. a book before that came out of the dissertation and then this one has grown out of that project
0: yes the first uh book uh, was called The Vietnam War in American Memory, Veterans, Memorials, and the Politics of Healing. And um, it considers the adequacy of the concept of healing as a way to come to terms with the legacy of the Vietnam War. And in the final chapter of that book, I say that for all of its attractions and blandishments and for all of the appeal of reconciling a divided country, there's something about this concept of healing that involves a suspension and perhaps an evasion of justice. And um, I said that uh, in the commemorative arena, just as in the legal arena, Americans have immunized themselves from negative judgments about their actions in the Vietnam War. Now clearly there's a large debate about that and there are some extremely self-critical Americans but largely self-criticism was suspended and bracketed and put in abeyance in the name of healing and reconciling divided memories of the Vietnam War. And that thought, um, if you agree with it, then I suppose it counts as an insight, but let's say that thought was really the bridge that led into the second book, American Immunity.
1: Okay, so as you turned from a project that was on healing and more on memorials to a project that was on the detailed legal side of justice, how did you get into that research and what kind of research did you do?
0: I came across a document, a report, from a congressional subcommittee. It was the House Armed Services Investigating Subcommittee report on the Milai Massacre. And in the midst of that report, there was a recommendation that the um, Congress plug a jurisdictional gap that prevented the prosecution of military veterans who had participated in the Milai Massacre but could not be prosecuted because the United States Constitution prevents the prosecution of civilians in military courts, and the jurisdiction of civilian courts does not extend to crimes overseas. And this meant that because of the cover-up of the My Lai Massacre, most of those who had perpetrated the massacre, 90% of the soldiers who massacred the Vietnamese civilians at My Lai were out of uniform and therefore they were immune from prosecution by any American court. But I came across this reference to a legislative proposal that this uh, subcommittee recommended and which it passed on to the House Armed Services Committee and that got me interested in how this gap in jurisdiction came about, and about the efforts to close the gap. Then I began to investigate at the Library of Congress's uh, law library and at the National Archives, and this took me into a kind of historical research that I had never done before. I'm not a legislative historian, and I more or less had to teach myself how to do a legal history which turns out to be quite difficult when the laws are not passed, when they're proposed in Congress after Congress, but they die in committee, usually before they reach the uh, full legislative chamber. Um, Laws that pass leave more of a paper trail than laws that fail. So I won't go into all of the arcane details of how to use various indexes and finding aids, although I should commend the um, research staff, the, the, uh, the research archivists at these libraries and archives where I was trying to do this work. It was easy to find out where the uh, jurisdictional gap had started. Uh, That had begun in the mid-1950s in a decision of the United States Supreme Court that prevented the prosecution, or rather it struck down the conviction of a military veteran who had been court-martialed for a crime that he had committed while he was in uniform. The court decided that because he was prosecuted once he had left the armed forces and had resumed civilian status, he was entitled to a jury trial after indictment by a grand jury, which is the constitutional right of every American citizen. And um, this problem had been anticipated by the proposers of the American Military Legal Code, the Uniform Code of uh, Military Justice, which had been passed about five years earlier. Um, But they had anticipated that uh, the Supreme Court would allow the prosecution of veterans for crimes that they had committed while in uniform. This matter had been discussed in the hearings leading up to the passage of this legislation because they could see that there were all kinds of practical problems. If you tried to prosecute a military veteran for a crime that he had committed overseas, there would be a problem of obtaining evidence. There would be a problem of securing witnesses. How could you compel a witness of an overseas crime to come to testify at an American civilian uh, court? So they saw that in practical terms, it was much more efficient to allow prosecution by a court-martial, which could be convened anywhere in the world and which wouldn't face all of these practical difficulties. The Supreme Court, however, is extremely protective of the rights of U.S. citizens and therefore did not agree with Congress that that was a good idea, and they struck down the part of the military legal code, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which had allowed prosecution by court-martial of former members of the armed services for crimes that they had committed while they were in the period of military service. So if you're um, keeping up with this rather complicated plot situation, um, basically, uh, if a member of the armed forces covered up a crime, or if the crime was not detected until after he or she had left the armed forces, there was no court in which he or she could be prosecuted. And obviously, this situation created some alarm in the United States Congress. And immediately, members of Congress, led first by Senator Thomas Hennings and then later by his successor in a key committee chairmanship, Senator Sam Irvin, began to propose laws to close the jurisdictional gap by vesting jurisdiction in such crimes in federal district courts. And that would have solved the problem because then all of the um, constitutional and procedural protections that American citizens are supposed to enjoy would have been preserved. So a pretty straightforward and obvious answer to the jurisdictional problem, one would have thought. But then all of the practical problems with shifting jurisdiction to um, civilian courts reared their heads. The ones that I've mentioned at the start, the ones that Congress had contemplated when they were considering where to vest jurisdiction, The problem of compelling witnesses and obtaining evidence and all of those sorts of practical problems were always mentioned. And um, so time after time, these legislative proposals died. And extraordinarily, it was well over a decade. It was about 14 or 15 years from the time when the Supreme Court made the ruling that opened up the jurisdictional gap, to the time when its practical consequences became clear with the uh, immunity from prosecution of the perpetrators of the Mili massacre who were by then out of uniform by the time the crime was detected. And in Congress after Congress, the remedial laws had been proposed, but they'd failed every time. And then Senator Sam Irvin the principal proponent of the remedial laws was struck by this consequence that there was now no court in which the perpetrators of this terrible atrocity could be prosecuted. And he and his legislative aides said, well, it may have taken a massacre finally to prompt Congress to pass the law that we've known for all of these years was required In order to allow military veterans to be prosecuted in federal district courts, because there is a lack of jurisdiction in the courts-martial system, am I going on too long?
1: Oh no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. I do have a question as you um, are going along, though. Uh, If you could, for a minute, talk about kind of the big picture before we talk more about um, Mila, of why this is so important. I mean, to some extent, it's, of course, seems intuitive to say, you know, don't want American soldiers to murder someone abroad and, you know, not be able to be prosecuted for it. But um, from an international law perspective, you know, it's not, not just a moral question. It, there's also a relationship between the Uniform Code of Military Justice and international law. And I was wondering if you could talk for just a minute about that relationship and why, They're talking about the um, Uniform Code of Military Justice at this time and how this jurisdictional gap presents a problem on an international level. Well,
0: it's a significant diplomatic problem because this was a period in which the United States was uh, founding military bases all over the world and was uh, coming up with proposing status of forces agreements with host countries that would have divided jurisdiction or would have established complementary and sometimes overlapping jurisdiction between the host countries and the United States for any infractions against laws that were committed by the American troops. Um, Now, That didn't apply directly to the Vietnam War uh, context uh, because it was a a war zone, but uh, that was part of the context in which the increasing international reach and presence of American military forces around the world was requiring these new arrangements to be put into place, which established a relationship between host country jurisdiction and American uh, jurisdiction. Uh, So part of the story is how does one prevent people from falling between the stools, as it were, from people from falling into gaps in jurisdiction that are produced by this new situation with American forces operating and uh, based all over the world. There's another important uh, context as well, which is the increasing... Promulgation and acceptance of international legal standards, which are marked by events such as the creation of the United Nations, the holding of the post World War II war crimes tribunals in the Far East and in Germany, and actually in other allied countries, which uh, helped to establish precedents, creating uh, internationally accepted uh, legal standards for the conduct of troops in war, and the passage of a host of international agreements, including the Geneva Conventions. So these led to the increasing spread of the concept of internationally accepted legal standards about behavior of forces in wartime or international humanitarian law, to give it its formal name. And that was established, as I say, through international agreements and precedents and uh, so on. But as well as this tendency towards the growing acceptance of international legal standards and the uh, uh, acceptance that there would be institutions uh, such as tribunals in which they could be enforced, there was another tendency that was expressed in the, inter- in the uh, United Nations, which was the acceptance of the nation-state as uh, an important, uh, and for most purposes, the principal entity in which legal codes would be enforced. and. This included the jealous protection of national sovereignty by nations such as the United States, uh, which regards the United States Constitution as the supreme law uh, 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 to which American citizens are subject. So there's a tension here between the increasing reach and spread and general acknowledgement and acceptance of international legal standards, but the continuing importance of national jurisdictions and the concept of the supremacy of the United States Constitution as the supreme law of the land. Now, this situation is not unique to the United States, but the United States was in an important sense, in a very unusual, if not a unique position in the post-World War II period. It had been one of the parties that had convened the international tribunals that tried war criminals after World War II. So it was one of the entities that promulgated and enforced internationally uh, acknowledged Standards for conduct in warfare. And as the most powerful nation in the world, it would also likely be the principal enforcer of the law around the world in the post World War II period. But that also meant that it's very difficult to see who could enforce a law against the United States or its citizens in contexts where the United States saw its own law, its own legal codes, as being supreme. So I regard this as one of the characteristic problems in international law in the post-World War II period, this um, rather bifurcated position for the United States of being the principal enforcer of internationally acknowledged legal standards, but at the same time being uh, possessed of peculiar ability to protect its own citizens and troops from the application of those standards uh, where uh, it didn't want to allow its troops to be subject to those standards. And in today's context, bringing this right up to the present, uh, the I suppose best example of that is the non-adherence of the United States to the Rome Statute uh, which created the International Criminal Court. The United States is one of the few countries that doesn't accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over its troops and its citizens. Now, clearly this creates a a sharper version of the tension between an internationally accepted code of behavior that was uh, reaching around the world through the codification of laws and the uh, signing of treaties and the creation of legal precedents. The tension between that uh, situation and the situation that existed because. There was a gap in American law that prevented American veterans from being prosecuted for crimes that they uh, could be overwhelmingly shown to have committed in, place, in, in uh, a place like My Lai, uh, for example. So um, what appears to be this rather unusual um, uh, instance of the effect of the jurisdictional gap, has a larger significance if you put it into the larger, uh, larger context. This was a situation in which there was no court, international or in the United States domestic law, that could um, enforce uh, legal standards uh, against U.S. troops who had committed murder at Leilight.
1: So given that broader context and in some ways how incredibly important it seems like closing that gap would be and how there were of course the practical problems that you mentioned before, but also closing the gap in a way that made the United States still the you know, the place where those trials were done um, seems like the thing to do, right? Why did Congress not close that gap both before, uh, well, we'll start with perhaps before Milai and then talk also about after.
0: Well, there is an interesting moment in the early 1960s where, in a congressional hearing, a witness from the American Civil Liberties Union said, Well, look, this gap has existed for a number of years, and it doesn't seem that there is much damage that's being done as a result of it. Uh, it's unlikely that the sorts of crimes of violence that would be affected by this jurisdictional gap would go undetected, and so what is the problem? We seem to have got along so far uh, for the last few years, and uh, there's no particular urgency in uh, overcoming the practical problems that everybody cited every time the laws were proposed. Uh, and interestingly, this statement occurred in, as I say, the early or mid-1960s at a congressional hearing where the United States was already involved in a shooting war in Vietnam, and um, where one might have uh, hoped that, um, that there would be at least a degree of prescience about the possibility that some crimes of violence would take place that would go undetected until uh, a perpetrator was uh, out of uniform. But at, at this stage, it was the failure of the law for year after year and the fact that there was no obvious um, consequence that, uh, that was was terribly um, harmful that I think made uh, witnesses of this thought um, a bit complacent. Now, as I point out in the book, Anybody who was reading the newspapers and who could see that there were reporters who were reporting on um, some uh, difficult-to-justify actions by American forces in uh, Vietnam, they might have been a bit more willing to acknowledge the possibility that something that hadn't happened the day before might nevertheless happen the day after. Um, so. There was just a, a, a lack of a sense of urgency about the importance of plugging the jurisdictional gap.
1: Okay. And so then Mili occurs, and I'm just in case, perhaps you might um, tell our listeners uh, what happened at that event and how it comes to public light, and for that matter, how it came to government light, and then tell us a little bit about the discussions and what urgency that does create.
0: The Milai Massacre was a search and destroy mission by a task force consisting of several infantry companies of the Americal division. And it took place at a village called Son Mi and the principal massacre sites were two sub hamlets of that village marked on American maps as Milai Four and Mi K Four. Hence the designation of the massacre as the My Lai Massacre. The American troops had been subject to attack by snipers and booby traps and mines and hadn't had a chance to get an enemy in their sights. And on the evening before this attack, they were told that the 48th Viet Cong local force battalion would be in the village that all of the civilians would have gone to market and there would be nobody in the village but Viet Cong or so-called Viet Cong sympathizers. The Viet Cong unit was not in the village and nevertheless, the American troops set about killing everybody that they encountered, sometimes in ones and twos or in small groups, and on a couple of occasions in large groups that they had been instructed by their platoon commanders to gather together. In one instance, a large group of villagers was gathered at a ditch where they were shot by American troops using automatic weapons and grenades, and a passing American soldier saw them lined up at the ditch and remarked later, It was a Nazi-like thing. The massacre was covered up for over a year, and uh, it wasn't until March of 1969 that a concerned American veteran who had not belonged to that unit but who had heard about the event had been horrified and had talked to some of his fellow troops and to some veterans after he returned to the United States, wrote letters to the Secretary of Defense, the President, and other public officials with an unusual degree of vividness and articulateness. The letter he sent was not unique, but it had the ring of truth. And the army immediately set about investigating the event and within a few months, they had established that a large-scale massacre had taken place. In the end, uh, it was up to 500 American, uh, sorry, Vietnamese villagers uh, who were unarmed, who were not shooting back, who uh, were found to have been killed by the task force troops. And the uh, uh, Criminal Investigation uh, Division uh, decided that there were grounds for prosecution, and they uh, recommended the levelling of court martial charges at certain members of this unit who remained in uniform. But of course, as I said before, because it was now uh, a year after the event, and by the time this investigation was carrying on, it was uh, you know uh, the the time was stretching on. Ninety percent of the suspected perpetrators were out of uniform, and they. They therefore fell into the jurisdictional gap that I've mentioned. Um, ultimately, only one soldier was convicted of uh, responsibility for the massacre. First Lieutenant William Kelly was uh, found guilty of the murder of 22 civilians, and he was sentenced first to life imprisonment, but the sentence was reduced first to 20 years and then to 10 years. Ultimately, he was paroled after serving uh, between three and four years in captivity, in, in, uh, some of which was spent in bachelor officer's quarters on his military base. Um, so those are the bare outlines of the uh, events of the massacre. And, of course, it's leads to the point that I made about the recognition that this jurisdictional gap had prevented the prosecution of many of the perpetrators of the massacre.
1: Okay, so there's a lot of discussion about how the United States might, in fact, punish these soldiers or how they might um, go about uh, providing for justice in this particular case. So could you talk a little bit about that kind of discussion and some of the debates and some of the options that they thought they had and sort of how that fits into this debate about closing the jurisdictional gap?
0: Yes, there was a serious proposal by the um, general counsel for the army, a guy called Robert Jordan III, to convene a military commission to try the veterans who were not subject to prosecution by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, Jordan wrote a careful and detailed memorandum saying why he believed that this convening of a military commission would not fall foul of the constitutional protections that prevented prosecution by a court-martial. He consulted with um, William Rehnquist, who at that time was uh, in the uh, counsel's office in the White House before his elevation to the Supreme Court. This has been Established by other scholars, and the memorandum in which Jordan proposed this plan uh, has come to light before, and I traced it to uh, the judge advocate's uh, archive in Charlottesville, Virginia, because it's been cited by other scholars. Um, what I discovered and what I report in uh, in the book, a point that has never been uh, uh, established by other scholars is that there was a, an agreement among the principal executive departments that would have been responsible for such a prosecution uh, principally the Department of Justice the Department of State and the Department of Defense they all agreed that this would be a valid course to pursue to convene a military commission to ensure that Nobody got away with their crimes simply because they happened to be out of uniform by the time their crime was detected. In the end, those prosecutions didn't take place, and um, it's not perfectly clear why this plan that had been agreed on by the principal executive departments didn't take place. Jordan says we didn't have much support from upstairs. And this could have meant the White House, and the White House was actually rather disengaged from this whole process of contemplating the means of prosecuting the My Lai veterans. They were much more concerned about the domestic political impact of the event and its consequences for the re-election prospects of President Nixon and for public support of his war policy in Vietnam. So they were regarding the whole post-Milai situation in political terms, not principally as an occasion for moral leadership or for the scrupulous uh, enforcement of legal standards. Uh, It's also possible that the results of the courts-martial that were heard had an effect on the uh, prospect's for prosecution by military commission. There were two enlisted men who were prosecuted at court martial, and whose cases in, uh, ended in acquittal. Uh, one of the leading historians of this um, uh, the, the judicial uh, consequences of the, the Mila Massacre, uh, Michael Belknap, said that it appeared that obedience to orders was regarded as a complete defense against charges uh, re- uh, arising from uh, a, an enlisted man's uh, court-martial prosecution. Uh, of course, that ought not to have been the uh, legal position, but uh, court martial's judgment uh, is made by a court-martial panel or the, the jury. And in these instances, uh, the two cases ended in acquittal. And it was decided that there was no point in mounting further prosecutions of enlisted men by court-martial, because they were likely to end in the same way. Now, this must have made the prospects for prosecution by military commission appear rather bleak, because there were only two possible outcomes. Either the cases would end in the same way, by acquittal, if the troops, sorry, if the veterans were prosecuted by civilian juries, or if they had resulted in convictions, then that would have cast serious questions on the effectiveness of the military justice system in the court-martial arena. Uh, so the decision was taken after the acquittals by court-martial of two enlisted men, not to mount the uh, prosecutions by military commissions that Jordan had proposed and that several executive departments had agreed to pursue.
1: Okay, so they decide against having this military tribunal. They've had this incident, this massacre, that really highlights the jurisdictional gap. So why doesn't Congress take action then?
0: Uh, did seem extraordinary that after the My Massacre, there was still no successful legislative proposal to close the jurisdictional gap. Congress did not pass the bills that continued to be proposed from that time onwards. And now with a greater urgency, uh, Sam Irvin uh, pointed out, that this jurisdictional gap was preventing the prosecution of veterans who had participated in the My Lai Massacre, his legislative aide said it may have taken a massacre finally to prompt Congress to act. But their expectations were disappointed. And it's very difficult to explain why for year after year, Proposals continued to be made, but continued to fail. And indeed, it wasn't until 1995 with the passage of the War Crimes Act that the gap began to be closed. And then finally, it was closed more fully in 2000 with passage of the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, or MEJA, So it was literally decades until the uh, jurisdictional gap was finally closed. Um, The leading uh, military legal historian, Eugene Fidel, said, well, apparently members of Congress don't read the legal journals because there was consistent discussion about the need for passage of this legislation in uh, legal journals, but still uh, nothing was done.
1: So why was it finally passed in the 90s and 2000? Do we have any insight to why that was the tipping point, the moment it finally came to be? There are two
0: different accounts. One account says that there was a particularly egregious case in which um, a crime is committed that could not be prosecuted because of the jurisdictional gap. And the um, judge, hearing the case, sent a report to the congressional committees that dealt with this sort of matter with a history of all of the proposals to fill the jurisdictional gap and an account of how these proposals had failed time after time. So one account is that Judge Cabrain's message to Congress, quite an unusual step for a judge to take, was what finally prompted Congress to act. I'm not sure that I agree with that interpretation, and um, I have spoken to one of the principal legal aide who was responsible for drafting the legislation that eventually passed in Congress. And he points out that actually the successful legislation passed before um, Kebrane had sent this uh, message to the congressional committees. So I think we have to ask, what else in the context might have prompted the uh, legislators to act in a different way. Let me just uh, uh, make a a modification to that. The the legislation had been voted out of committee uh, by the time uh, Cabrain sent his, his message. So it's success up to that point couldn't be explained by his message, although his message may have prompted legislators in the um, uh, full uh, chamber of congress uh, that were still to vote on the act that might have uh, had an effect on them. But there was another important development in the international arena. The Rome Statute had been agreed By a number of nations, and the International Criminal Court was coming into being. Some of the principal participants in the discussion, such as um, the uh, aide to Sam Irvin, who I mentioned before, said that there was going to be a serious problem if the United States was denying the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over its citizens and its troops and veterans, while at the same time there were glaring gaps in American law that meant that they couldn't be prosecuted in American courts. Let me explain how this problem arises very sharply. There is a situation of complementary jurisdiction by the International Criminal Court and by national courts of its uh, member countries uh, and indeed of other nations. This means that if a national judicial system conducts a prosecution, the International Criminal Court or the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the case. If a nation makes a good faith effort to investigate and prosecute one of its own troops, citizens, uh, or veterans, then the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction. But of course, this can apply only in instances where such a prosecution by a national judicial system is possible. So you can see the problem. Part of the problem that was pointed out was that the United States uh, required uh, Geneva Convention protections for its own citizens. But until passage of the War Crimes Act, it was not in a position to enforce the provisions of the Geneva Conventions uh, against um, uh, those who were subject to US law because the Geneva Conventions are not self-executing, and they require a statute in order to allow them to be enforced, a statute that establishes the definition of crimes, the scale of penalties, and uh, so forth. That same situation also existed in the jurisdictional um, uh, position regarding uh, the jurisdiction of the ICC and American um, domestic Uh, law, where this uh, situation of uh, complementary jurisdiction meant that the United States would be able to assert its national jurisdiction over its own citizens and troops and veterans. But clearly it could do that only in a position where its own legal codes, had jurisdiction over those uh, possible de- uh, defendants. Um, this possible encroachment by the ICC was a political and a diplomatic problem. The United States does not accept the jurisdiction of the ICC over its own people anyway. But We were also in a situation where there was an increasing tendency for national courts of other nations to prosecute foreigners based on the principle of universal jurisdiction or on the extraterritorial application of their own laws. So the march of legal standards without borders seemed to be part of the course of events. And this is clearly a point that was raised by those who were proposing the statutes, That would close the jurisdictional gap. It's absolutely clear in the congressional debates that uh, they were advocating the passage of American domestic laws that would close the jurisdictional gap in order to prevent Americans from being subject to, in the words of a witness in the congressional hearings, to avoid the possibly draconian standards that would be applied in international or foreign courts. So I think that this gives a kind of richer and fuller context to the notion that it was Judge Cabrinha's prompting of Congress that uh, eventually persuaded Congress to act. I think Congress made its decision in this uh, international context in which there was an increasing tendency for foreign and international courts to apply their standards and possibly they might have called upon an American citizen to surrender to the jurisdiction of one of those courts. And if the United States had not been in a position to assert its own jurisdiction over the suspect, That would have put the United States in a difficult diplomatic predicament.
1: So given that this change happens right before the war on terror and a lot of changes in um, U.S. international involvement, and of course there's been lots of uh, controversies over uh, U.S. behavior abroad during the war on terror, what are the consequences of closing of this jurisdictional gap?
0: Well, um, there is now a kind of a double closing of the jurisdictional gap because, first of all, Mieger allowed the prosecution by federal district courts of those who um, committed infractions against the uniform kind of military justice but who were no longer subject to that law. So That's one way in which the gap was filled through the um, vesting of jurisdiction in federal district courts. But a few years later, there was another um, change in the law that extended the jurisdiction of courts-martial over civilians accompanying or serving with the armed forces overseas. And um, so there is now... A situation in which, for example, um, a military contractor who is serving alongside the uh, United States forces might be prosecuted in a federal district court, or this expanded reach of the uniform kind of military justice and of the possibility of prosecution by court-martial might apply. So there has to be a decision made, um, a political and legal decision about which forum should be used to uh, try uh, one of these um, uh, possible suspects. Um, There's been a rather limited use of the new statute, the the major statute, Um, it's only being used in a small number of cases. And I think that uh, that could be largely explained by the practical difficulties and expense of mounting a trial in a uh, federal district court uh, for a crime that might have taken um, place thousands of miles away and um, in which there are problems of evidence and securing the uh, scene of the crime... Uh, problems of securing witnesses and and those sorts of things, so there have been just a, a very small number of prosecutions under uh, the major statutes. There are significant constitutional obstacles to the application of the expanded uh, uniform code of military justice expanded uh, jurisdiction let 's go back to the Vietnam War right after the period that we were discussing in 1970 there was a decision in the highest military court that changed the jurisdictional provisions regarding civilians accompanying the armed forces up until that time it had been possible to prosecute a civilian accompanying the armed forces during time of war and it was um, clear that the Vietnam War met the definition of time of war for the sake of that jurisdictional provision. Now, the time of war provision survived beyond that um, judicial decision, but the military court decreed that time of war applied only to wars declared by Congress. That's happened very few times in American history, and here is a poser for your listeners. When was the last time that Congress declared war on a foreign enemy? No, it wasn't. Japan in 1941. It turns out, according to the Congressional Research Service, that it was against Romania in 1942, and this has happened very few times in uh, American history, as I said, and not for decades. So the provision that allowed prosecution by court-martial of civilians accompanying the armed forces in time of war was uh, determined to apply only to wars declared by Congress. Now, given the very large number of contractors that serve alongside the American forces and that have done so in recent uh, military actions since the 1990s, this was a very important um, uh, jurisdictional gap that actually expanded the gap that I was initially discussing, which was the one that affected military veterans. The reasoning was the same, and the line of cases grew out of the same original 1950s uh, case. There was another line of cases that involved civilians accompanying the armed uh, forces, uh, as well as the um, case that uh, established immunity from court-martial prosecution of military veterans. So there's these parallel lines of cases one of which involves military veterans, the other of which involves civilians accompanying the armed forces. And so there is a great deal of relevance to this discussion because it affects, for example, the prospects of prosecuting some of these military contractors who military officers and members of Congress said in Um, the occupation of Iraq, were behaving, and this is not my phrase, this is a a phrase by a witness in a congressional hearing, they were behaving like out-of-control cowboys and were bringing disrepute onto the U.S. forces and were causing uh, immense um, political uh, problems. But again, there are significant legal hurdles to be overcome in mounting such uh, prosecutions, as well as the sort of practical uh, problems in mounting those uh, prosecutions to which I referred uh, before, and judgments have to be made about the appropriate forum in which to conduct the prosecutions now that there have been decisions made that close the jurisdictional gap, but do so in uh, different ways. And only last year, the government, uh, after immense effort, uh, overcame a large number of hurdles to uh, succeed in the prosecution of perpetrators of a massacre in Lesor Square in Iraq, um, who had worked for the Blackwater uh, Corporation. So um, the sorts of jurisdictional problems and issues that, I discussed in this book are very much alive today. Although when I first came across the reference to the jurisdictional problem in this uh, congressional report uh, of the MELI investigating subcommittee, I had no idea that it would have such relevance to contemporary problems. Uh, the sorts of issues that I was reading about in the newspapers arising from the um, uh, occupation of Iraq at that time and that have continued to be relevant in Afghanistan more recently.
1: So since you're talking a little bit about the contemporary side of things and we're sort of, as we're winding down, one thing that I sometimes like to ask our authors is, if you could tell sort of the general public one thing about the importance of your book for understanding um, current state of American power or international law or what the really important takeaway point to thinking about these kinds of continuing and current issues, um, what is that most important takeaway point that you would like people to be thinking about?
0: I think there's an important political point that arises from all of this. America's military and political power means that it can make decisions about matters of jurisdiction which others have very little opportunity to overrule. It's difficult to see in today's world who could uh, enforce the law on an American citizen in the context of uh, an infraction against um, internationally acknowledged legal standards involving the conduct of war if the United States did not want to surrender that individual to the jurisdiction of a foreign or an international court. But I think that the United States has to be extremely circumspect about flexing its muscles in order to deny the jurisdiction of the ICC, in order to insist on its monopoly over decisions about the prosecution of its own people, because it runs the risk of being seen to apply double standards to others and to its own. At this point, the United States has participated in the capture of uh, people who were brought before the um, chamber of the International Criminal Court, but it continues to deny the jurisdiction of the court against its uh, own uh, people. Now, I think that there is a potential diplomatic and political problem if the United States gives evidence that supports the view that it applies double standards to its own people and uh, and to others. Um, So even though the uh, United States may have sufficient power to insist on the supremacy of the Constitution and the monopoly over um, making judgments uh, regarding its own people, uh, I think that it has to be extremely consistent in imposing internationally acknowledged standards on its own people and doing so consistently and rigorously if it's going to insist on the supremacy of the Constitution and its own monopoly over judicial decisions regarding its own people. And I think that it's arguable that at this point, the United States is not meeting that standard. The public seems to be ahead of its leaders, its legislators, in the sense that there's a greater degree of public support for joining the International Criminal Court than there is among legislators. Now, the ICC has its own problems, and it may not be the uh, answer to all of the problems that I've been discussing, but the underlying issue that this um, instance, this If you like this, this, this rather small and intricate jurisdictional problem highlights is the inconsistency of the United States in its application to itself and to its own of the standards that it applies when judging its defeated enemies, and there is a very serious danger in having a double standard, because it makes, it brings into disrepute the whole edifice of international law that the United States has done more than any other nation in the post-Second World War period to bring into being. I think the United States has a national interest in ensuring that its own people are subject to the same standards as others are.
1: Okay, that's a really important and great takeaway point. So on that note, we've taken up a lot of your time, and so I was wondering if you could just close by telling us what you're working on now.
0: Well, I had the great privilege of doing research in Washington, D.C. in the first few months of 2015. I was there actually from January until the end of August uh, 2015, uh, researching memorials on the Washington, D.C. Mall. So that's... An uh, important current project that, that I'm working on. Um, so it goes back to the subject matter of my first book, but then I'm also working on the problem of command, responsibility, and uh, the, the Vietnam War. Um, and that's uh, a project that picks up, in, in certain respects, on the themes that I dealt with in my second book. So those are two parallel projects that I'm working on at this point.
1: All right. Those sound great. Sounds like you're very busy. Um, Thank you for taking time to join us. And we appreciated um, your time and hearing about your book. I'm
0: very grateful for your questions and for the opportunity to talk about my work. Thank you very much. Thank you.